The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we should just kind of kick things off then. Um, welcome to Floodcast. It's very exciting to have you. Um, we've got Cam Coventry here, who's a historian at the Federation University Ballarat. Uh, you may have seen him in the news recently. He's authored a really wonderful recent paper uh, called The Eloquence of Robert J. Hawke, United States Informer, 1973 to 1979. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Cam. It's really lovely to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. So maybe we can just um, sort of set up the, the context of your article a little more before we go on. So basically, uh, for those who haven't read it, it shows that um, uh, Hawke was a US informer between 1973 to 79. Um, so that's before he became prime minister in 1983. Um, and he was passing information via cables to US diplomats. So could you tell us, like, who were the major players here? Um, who are we actually talking about? Like, was this the CIA? Was this these, you know, other diplomats um, within the US government? Um, like, yeah, what's he, who's he talking to and what kind of information is he giving them? Well, on the evidence, you know, we can say for sure that he was talking to people within the State Department, people who were in diplomatic missions in Australia. As for the CIA connection, Really, the most that can be said um, that that I'm aware of, again, keeping it um, strictly to to the evidence that I've considered, is to say that he was talking to mid-level um, diplomats who are, you know, it's something of a cliche, uh, intelligence um, uh, officers. And in the, in the case of the United States, um, it's been said by the historian. Um, David McKnight, that the Labour attaché um, from the 60s was known to have been uh, part of the CIA uh, as, a, as a sort of general rule. Um, they, they saw in Hawke um, his immediate value, which was that he was the chief representative of the Labour movement, and, and somewhat unusually so. I mean, by the, by the 1970s, he is a, um, you know, he has become synonymous with the union movement in Australia. He was a, a very potent um, figure. And so they, they just, you know, because he was head of the ACTU um, and as well as head of the ACTU, he was from 1973 um, the president of the Australian Labor Party as well. Um, and so because he was, he had that sort of, um, those twin positions. He was, you know, a very powerful person and somebody who had was privy to a lot of, um, you know, the goings on um, behind the scenes. Um, so that was his immediate value. Um, but they also saw in him his value as 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 somebody as a future politician. You know, this is this is a man who was clearly going places, and they wanted to in their own words, um, educate him. I, th I think it's fair to say that there's the, there, there must have been some role played by the US officials in filtering out politicians um, within the Labour Party, but within government too. 
you know if if it is that you're seen as a as a an enemy or a threat of some kind to the pursuit of their interests in Australia, then you will get sidelined. Um, and there is an example of this on on the evidence of the cables, um, where uh, Clyde Cameron was uh, going to become defence minister, and they registered their their opposition to this um, because of his his you know associations with with the left. Um, so there is there is that sort of suggestion that there is there there is direct interference in in that way. Like following on from that, the thing I wanted to talk a bit about is uh, what did the U.S. actually see its interests in Australia at this time? Like the U.S. obviously cares what's happening in the Australian labor movement, right? And that's presumably the U.S. There are certain things that it wants. There are certain things that it doesn't want to see happening. There are certain ideas that maybe it's want to spread. Um, what were the United States interests in the Australian labor movement and how do you reckon Bob Hawke helps them pursue those interests? Yeah, so he's he's telling, um, he's providing information um, that is important to the pursuit of their interests in Australia. And those interests are economic, um, predominantly. Um, so, but, but they're also in, in terms of, um, you know, so-called defense um, as well. So I'll, I'll deal with those in turn. Um, economically, by this time, the United States has got multinational corporations in Australia. Um, and the advantage of, of these, these cables is that they're, you know, talking quite frankly um, about these interests. Um, and so they're explicitly saying, you know, we have multinational corporations, we need to protect those. Um, and that, you know, their relationships with, with many different people, um, but especially Hawk, is, um, you know, aimed at that. Um, and because by this time, the union movement accounts for um, over 50% of the workforce, um, it's a very powerful movement. And Hawke has positioned himself as the, the figurehead of this, of this movement. And he's, you know, repeatedly stands in, in contest with the Whitlam government. Um, and by the end of the decade, he is, um, in their eyes, the de facto opposition. You know, Labour's, you know, navel-gazing. They're all concerned about their own, you know, leadership skirmishes and getting rid of Whitlam and blah, blah, blah. But, but Hawke remains, you know, this, this opposing figure, um, but in a very reasonable um, way from their, from their point of view. Um, so Hawke's providing information about union disputes um, as they pertain to um, these, these corporations, you know, such as Ford. Uh, but they're also, you know, there's also international um, labour things going on. So, so at, at the same time, the, um, uh, the UN's International Labour Organisation the United States is is pulling out of this organization is threatening to pull out and is pulling out of this this organization because they um you know don't see it as as you know being conducive to the um, pursuit of their interests and so you know Hawke is is seen as being a, a moderating influence um on the union movement in Australia and internationally as as well um but he's also helping 
with union disputes at um, defense installations. Um, you know, so we see it at Northwest Cape, the um, the Harold Holt um, station, um, that you know Hawk is being called upon to resolve matters involving workers there, and and you know doing so in such a way as to as to to help this this you know um, station you know remain in operation. Um, and in fact, things got you know so. Um, heated, that they were worried that they weren't able to send the US. This is what weren't uh, were worried that they weren't able to send um, cables, um, you know, through it. Um, and and the uh, Northwest Cape is is we now know is you know a, a very important station. Um, and if there ever were was to be nuclear war, that it would involve that station um, and. A message would pass through it um, without the the chance for an Australian, you know, view on on the matter. So it's actually like, like if there's a uh, a strike or a labour action at the Ford factory or something, he's on the one hand like getting the information from the workers and then passing it on to the US, who presumably like, I mean, like I don't know if they directly pass it on to the people as Ford, but. It does sound like there's a pretty clear contradiction between like uh, Hawke's ostensible position as like uh, like in the unions supposedly like working in favour of the Australian working class, and then in fact going behind people's backs and saying and doing stuff that like it kind of sounds like that you interests in these businesses and like the defence stations as well like don't necessarily coincide coincide with the interests of the people Hawke was a. Uh, supposedly there to represent yes well it shows that 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 hawk as as the the representative of the union movement wasn't representing it shows that hawk the politician was in full flight um in the early 70s um you know this is a man who who was a politician well before he entered parliament you know the ford uh, motor company dispute is is quite an interesting one um you know, and if you look at the the cables, there's there's a number that 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 discuss it. But essentially, you have a workforce that is comprised majority um, of of migrants, um, and they are paid, you know, at a at a bad rate, um, and they work according to Laurie Carmichael, um, the the communist um, union leader, uh, that they they work in in these abysmal conditions um, in, in the Ford factories. So what Hawke's doing is mediating the dispute. Um, you know, Ford is obviously trying to deal with the unions and is using the power at its disposable, at, at, at its disposal, which includes the uh, diplomatic missions. And, and they are in turn using Hawke. They're in turn contacting Hawke and saying, you know, let's try and resolve this amicably. Um, and and uh, they they do they they I think it's a five percent increase, um, but uh, you know they they the workers are ticked off by it because it's not um, you know what they were looking for, um, but you know there's just countless examples of it. Another one involves for, uh, Frank Sinatra. So Frank Sinatra comes to Australia, and is you know a um, a pig, and um, as you'd expect him to be. And 
you know, he gets into this uh, dispute with um, these uh, female journalists um, and he calls them, I think he, he said, uh, from memory, it's, he, he calls them um, $2 hookers or something like this. Um, and so the, the uh, you know, journalist union, um, you know, <laughs> quite rightly gets very upset about this. And uh, they come up with this wonderful plan um, where they get in touch with the, um, you know, the airline unions and they're, you know, ground him in Australia so that not only can he not, you know, move about Australia, but he can't leave Australia because it would require union workers to load his plane and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so what, what Hawke does is present this, this, you know, public figure who's saying, you know, you can't leave Australia, we're, we're holding you hostage, we, we demand an apology and, and so on and so forth. Behind the scenes, he capitulates, you know, straight away. I mean, in fact, there's no, you know, it, it's just, he just doesn't agree with it. Um, and he, the, the popular view that has been depicted in a movie and is, is um, relatively well known is that, you know, there's this boozy, you know, liquor-soaked negotiations between, you know, these two, you know, these two dudes, you know, this very, you know, dick-heavy interchange. Dudes rock. <laughs> where where Hawk is, is, you know, drinking Sinatra under the table and, you know, it goes on for hours and then eventually they, you know, Hawk emerges and, and you know, he uh, um, issues this, what they called a joint statement of regret which is sort of seen as being something of an apology. And some people even say, oh, we got his apology and all this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, the cables contradict this. What they show is that with the help of another um, union heavyweight and uh, Labour heavyweight in New South Wales, John Ducker, um, they, you know, get in touch with Hawke and Hawke just says, oh, yeah, no apologies needed. Um, you know, so what we'll, what we'll do is we'll issue this joint statement of regret and and move on from there so it's all just a show for the for the media but most importantly for the workers it's a way of of getting them to you know to to climb down from a position that he was you know part of um you know um climbing up in the first place and and not only that you know to take away the sex appeal of the the whole thing um you know there was a very brief interchange between hawk and and sinatra um, Sinatra had a cold, he, he went to bed and Hawke had a shindig with, um, you know, his, his entourage. But the, the, they, he went in with the joint statement of regret and that was that. Um, it absolutely rules that, like, journalists' unions used to be able to do that. Just call up the transport unions and be like, oh, no, trap this celebrity in the country. Like, this country is now a prison for Frank Sinatra. We should... Absolutely bring that back. I mean, this is that's one of those stories that really, like, you don't even realise used to be possible. And you hear that and you're like, oh, wait, unions used to be, like, way more able to do stuff like that. So what, like, because just, like, reading through it, right, there's so many of these discrepancies between, like, Hawke's public positions and then his actual real views, which it seems like, like in so many cases... Bob Hawke was just, like, lying about what he believed, it seems. Like, he would just get out in public and say something, and then behind his back be like, no. Here's, like, here's what the, the big boys are actually saying behind closed doors. Can you tell us more about, like, 
some of the other positions that he was taking in public, which were just in no way, like as these cables showed, just not related to what he actually believed. I, I don't doubt that he, he um, you know, believed them. I mean, I, I think that um, that is to say his, his, uh, the private hawk. Um, you know, I think, I think Hawk was, uh, you know, interested in, in the job and, and, um, like so many politicians and, you know, leaders and Kings and all these, you know, power crazed people, um, would stop at nothing to, to get it. Um, I mean, you really need to be right. But I think that as far as, as his, you know, public versus private personas concerned, you know, it, it sort of shows the limits already. Certainly, the the idea that these unions could 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 do that, um, and and notably, there was a break. Um, they Sinatra was able to get from Melbourne to Sydney um, because of you know a, a sort of. I'm not sure if it was a break in solidarity, but I think he he managed to sort of sneak onto a plane, or there was something. It's, it certainly reeks of of, of that. Um, but when you've got these powerful unions and they're able to bring about, you know, greater quality or, or comparatively greater quality, um, and at the same time, you know, behind the scenes, they're conversing with, with other parties, other interested parties, and they're indicating that, they're, they're, you know, there's a lot more compromise than, than you know, the sort of public persona. You know, it's an indication not only of their power, but also the limits of their power. You know, sure, they're being chased by the United States, but, but you know, they have something over these people um, and they're able to get into this position. Um, and there's just countless examples of it um, with, with, with Hawke. I mean, another one is um, with respect to wage restraint, um, so where Hawke is pursuing all of these, you know, big wage increases and, and he's, you know, um, you know, actively looking for, for money for workers, you know, he's in cahoots with the Whitlam government, you know. And, and so, so some people on, on Twitter especially uh, have tried to sort of frame this as a, you know, you see Hawke was the bad guy and, you know, poor Whitlam. Um, you know, let's not, let's not uh, make that same mistake. I mean, Whitlam, you know, uh, had had considerable faults, and was himself, as these cables show, um, doing similar sort of things. Um, certainly not with the same, you know, gusto, but but um, you know he was he was certainly there. And so you have this this trend towards a wage restraint um, on the part of workers, um, and Hawke is is in cahoots with Whitlam, and um, the minister and, and trying to get this this compromise, trying to dampen, trying to put in wage restraint so as to take off, uh, take pressure off of um, inflation, which in part technically is is a neoliberal idea. Um, there's there's a, a fair bit of debate about that, um, and if I'm if I'm honest, is 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 a bit beyond me. Um, but as far as um, they, they reach a, a, an agreement called the Kirribilli Accord. Um, in 1974, and it is to uh, to have wage restraints to to bring about um, uh, you know the capitulation of, of workers in their their pursuit of, of higher wages, and so 
what these cables show is that, in actual fact, Hawke was already in agreement before the Akirabili Accord that he was using the ACTU um, a special conference um, of, of September 1974 to, to resolve this, this matter, um, but in a very, very um, subtle way. And so what he's doing is um, you know, telling diplomats, negotiating in their presence with the Whitlam government, with the secretary of the, of the department, negotiating to, to bring about this sort of, as Whitlam later described it, loosely worded indexation package, um, you know, which, which opened the door for, for future capitulation. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's a major part of, of the step towards neoliberalism. Um, and I should say that, yeah, I mean, it is, there's, it's often sort of seen as being this fait accompli that, you know, people are, neoliberalism has to be. You know, this is how it has to be. There's all these international pressures, and this is just how it has to be. And and you know, the core um, lesson of of economics and of politics is that you know, economics is what you want it to be. You know, you, there is a, a quite a degree of flexibility over what you can and can't do, and a lot of it is is just sort of rubbery figures. Um, Yanis Varoufakis, an economist um, who is um, also an Australian citizen. Um, and, and spent time here in the 90s, um, you know, does a very good job of explaining this. Um, you know, that, that economists like to present themselves as being rational and, you know, scientific, um, but, you know, um, that, that's, it's, it's largely just a smokescreen to try and, you know, make their conclusions seem like they're inevitable. Um, and this sort of, this certainly shows that if it was inevitable, then why did they even bother? You didn't need Hawke. You didn't need any of them. You know, you just, you didn't need, um, you know, any of what um, Elizabeth Humphreys, you know, describes um, because it's just going to naturally happen. It's just, you know, whoever's in power, it doesn't matter. It could be anyone, you know, tin pot dictatorship, anyone. They will end up with this neoliberal. And of course, that's not true. You've um, definitely brought up one of Flood's real favourite um, topics of discussion, which is Liz Humphreys and um, her wonderful war work on um, Australian neoliberalism being brought in um, by, by the Hawke and Keating governments largely, but um, following on from the work of the Whitlam governments there and the Accord, um, particularly the Accord. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the way that the, uh, the cables kind of show Hawke moving towards the Accord and... Um, maybe what role the US played in in kind of putting this stuff together. One of the things that you said in your article, which I thought was really interesting, was um, this this uh, explicit kind of like pursuing of an American-style industrial relations system. Um, what was kind of happening in US industrial relations at that time and did they get what they want through the accord? So with respect to Hawke's development um, as, a, as a politician... There's, I think, fairly compelling evidence um, on on the cables that, uh, sorry, within the cables that that show that they were successful at the very least in maximising a, a trend that that may have already been, you know, in in operation, if not creating it. I would say that it's it's safer to say that they were helping him along on his on his journey. 
So as as time progresses, of course, they they're you know providing more guidance, um, and the guidance with respect to the accord um, comes in in 1974, and it seems that 1974 is a very important year um, with respect to Hawke's sort of transition from a Keynesian to a to a neoliberal. We can say this because when he gives a speech on the 21st of August 1974, um, he's a speech that, that, you know, as a side note, he was, um, you know, plastered um, when he when he gave. Um, the speech was to a group of economists um, gathered at the um, Australian National University. And in that speech, he says, you know, that there needs to be, you know, some kind of social contract, you know, that, that labour and capital need to come together um, to, uh, you know, um, solve the economic crisis. And that was um, 19 days after it was suggested to him by the labour attaché uh, that he pursue some kind of tripartite, you know, compromise um, between the three parties of, of state, labour and, and capital. And, you know, it's not to say that this idea is, you know, their own. Um, it, it was it's an idea that they, they picked up on. And so you see Hawke's slow progression. He, he, starts to, he starts to think that there needs to be, you know, serious ra- wage restraint on the part of unions, um, which is a pretty significant thing um, when you consider that, that, that Hawke was in charge of the, effectively in, in charge of the labour movement at a time when you know really the greatest equality in Australian history had was had been reached, um, you know because of things like you know successful wage demands, um, and it's it's at that time of course that the financial um, interests of of um, capital are being constrained. You know they're they're not profiting as much as they could be profiting. They're actually having to pay more in wages. Um, than they than they had previously, and so Hawke starts to, as the decade progresses, starts to, um, you know, evince, um, you know, signs that he's 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 becoming more right wing in his economics. With the abandonment of full employment being sort of central to that shift, you know, the Accord is quite a complicated area of Australian history. Um, you know, I guess one of the arguments against this would be. To say that, um, you know, in actual fact, you know, Hawke wasn't the main player with the Accord, that there were, you know, lots of other people, um, you know, heading in that direction. Um, and so I think the, the safest position to take on the evidence um, is, is just to say that, that the United States is, is, you know, certainly keen for it um, and is, um, you know, cajoling, you know, people like Hawke, um, but also Ducker. You know, encouraging them to 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 pursue this, um, and so we've already you know heard about wage restraint um, and his his shift on on full employment um, with with tripartism, um, the the idea that you know you you can bring all three of the the parties you know to the table and, and reach some happy compromise. Um, I personally think is is fallacious, um, but. Certainly, with with the accord, um, 
you know, it was it was edging towards something. And viewed from hindsight, you could say, um, you know, that that what we have now is 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 a, a sort of natural process that occurred from from the accord. So I, I would say that that what you see with Hawke is that before he comes to power in 1983, you know, he's he's already on board. He's already on side. Um, he understands that that the accord can be used for this sort of corporatist um, agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was um, I was wondering like what what um, what explicitly was kind of the role of the AFL CIO in in this and like the way that the US State Department kind of used both um, the conservative elements within the. Uh, the AFL-CIO in the US to build alliances with with the labor movement in um, in Australia or in other places, um, and like what what to what extent did they get what they wanted in terms of shaping the industrial relations field? I guess um, because uh, it seems like they they had like relatively explicit ideas of what they wanted in terms of a US style bargaining um, system, um, and is d- did the did the weakening of the Australian Union movement that happened through the Accord, um, you know, particularly what I was thinking about when when I thought about this was the way you were describing the um, the solidarity strikes that were happening between the journalists and the airline unions. Um, and one of the things that one of the first things that kind of happened in the Accord um, through the Accord processes was the banning of solidarity strikes and solidarity actions. Uh, what what role did the the US industrial relations um, paradigm kind of fill in um, in informing the way that uh, the the Hawke government kind of took Australian industrial relations? Uh, well, I, I'd say that's it's beyond um, the scope of the article and of my my own um, knowledge. Um, I, I I didn't look at the nineteen eighties. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> but but I would I would say that it's yeah I mean you know it's just it's just interesting, isn't it? That they they specifically state that they want quote American style collective bargaining, and you know we more or less end up with that. Um, you know, uh, I, I think I, I wouldn't say that they they're in. There's too too many specifics um, with with that, um, and the same is true like with the the AFL CIO. Um, you know, there's there's a fair bit to do with trying to pair them up, but not necessarily what they actually do with that. Um, and you know, I, again, it's not something that I um, pursued too much. Um, you know, I found the I I, I know that um, there's it's said that um, George Meany, the the sort of hawk equivalent in the US, um, was you know said to be um, uh, an agent of the CIA, um, you know, in, in my sort of fairly cursory search of this, um, I, can't, I can't say I found anything that was of the sort of, you know, um, scholarly uh, variety um, <laughs> that, that I could that I could use um, with with, you know, with comfort. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there was an episode they they were um, there was uh, something to do with um, uh, Papua New Guinean um, independence, and it's been a couple of years since I've looked at that. But I, I recall that it was to do with 
how the unions were being established in the now independent Papua New Guinea. Um, so they wanted, Hawke was giving advice to the AFL-CIO and um, uh, letting the embassy know about it um, and saying that, that um, I, th I think he, he disapproved of the way they were going about things, that that's not how it works. And I think he was offering to help or something like that. Um, actually, that's just reminded me of another question. What do you know if Hawke was playing a role in like keeping an eye on the more radical elements in the labor unions? Like even the communist party, I think was probably on its way down by this time, but would have still been like had a role and there would have all like been some much more radical people in the labor movement, um, like actively organizing against this stuff. Do you know if like Hawke was keeping an eye on those people for the United States? Uh, for sure. So this sort of goes into the second part of the article, which is more about, you know, Hawk, um, Hawk himself, Hawk the man. And, and he's, um, uh, they see part of his value is that, is that they, they see that he's, he's bringing about this sort of, um, you know, moderation of, of the labor movement. Um, and so one of their concerns is, you know, what these people are, are doing uh, with respect to Hawke's power, you know. So if Hawke is the de facto opposition leader, if Hawke is this, you know, this man of destiny, um, who's going to get in his way? And so, so they're, they're keeping tabs on, on, you know, people who are, who are of concern. Um, you know, again, nothing, it's, there's not the kind of specifics um, that, that, uh, you know, would be ideal, um, but I would say that um, the general the general comments are that you know the labor attaché is 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 gathering sort of lists, is is out there trying to find out you know who are the who are the rabble rousers and who are, who's trying to you know stifle this this agenda. So you spoke a bit before about um, the idea that. Because uh, this is all occurring during the Whitlam government, and um, you you said before that it would be a mistake to think that Whitlam's kind of the good guy and Hawke uh, is the bad guy. That Whitlam himself and his government were, you know, pursuing these these policies. This, this kind of neoliberal shift, this gradual neoliberal shift to a um, to a less explicit uh, degree, even at the time. Um, so I wanted to ask you a bit more about Hawke's relationship with the Whitlam government and whether he acted to undermine. The, that government at any point, and particularly whether you think that he or the US diplomats he was working with had any role in the dismissal? Well, it was a tempestuous, um, you know, relationship. I mean, you know, um, Hawke and, and, and Whitlam, you know, really didn't like each other. Um, but what the cables show is that they're, they're still working together. You know, they, they're, they're rational political players. They're, they're not they're not just going to let emotion get in their way. Um, you know, Whitlam knows that Hawke would be beneficial within within Parliament, um, and you know, Hawke knows that he can't he can't do go too far with the Whitlam government. You know, there's only so much he can do because it's very popular. Um, and so, you know, what you see is is this, you know, this slow, these slow attempts to try and get Hawke. In as, as leader, including after the, the dismissal and 
that you know the dismissal is is confirmed you know overwhelmingly by the Australian people at the 75 election um you know obviously not necessarily in full possession of the the facts but that happened nonetheless and straight away Whitlam's drafting um you know a press release with Hawke so that you know Hawke get gets gifted the leadership of of the Labour Party and um you know this this fails pretty quickly and they you Hawke's not telling the the US officials you know why it's failing and and you know um instead they have to depend on on John Ducker who's telling them that you know yeah it's all gone belly up and and that as far as um you know he's concerned he's his main interest is getting his his protege Paul Keating um in in a position of of um of power as as the as the deputy um you know so you're starting to see this this sort of you know the contest that's that's occurring um that dominates the 80s and and uh, and early 90s um so beyond a, a you know numerous failed attempts to get hawk into into parliament um you know you see that there's there's a specific issue that that really does animate hawk and that is the question of of israel and he is you know quite fanatical in his in his support um publicly um and in private that's certainly the impression that he wants to convey um but as as the cables as the 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 US officials in the cables observe um you know there's there's nuance to this that in actual fact um the a number of pro-israel supporters um that you know vote labor um you know who who give money is something in the order of of um a fifth of their 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 total coffers um and so their their hawks you know is in melbourne and there's a, a strong um there's, there's a, a a large um jewish community of which you know the pro um israel um lobby if you will is is um you know quite quite strong quite quite powerful and he wants to get in to parliament in victoria in melbourne um and he understands that that there's a you know financial benefit to being seen to be pro pro israel um and so he he there's there's a particular um event in which an uh, intermediary um of uh Yasser Arafat contacts him and he says um uh that uh he says that this is in in 1974 um and he goes to the to the US embassy and to the um uh, uh Israeli um embassy and he says you know um we need to uh, this is you know they're trying to you know convert with uh, converse with me they want to reach some kind of you know solution to this um you know uh, to their to their problems and so um you know he doesn't go to the Whitlam government because he doesn't believe in its its even-handed what they call the even-handed policy and so he goes to these two other countries saying you know what do i do what do i do you know who do i talk to you know and by this time the US is um you know not especially um is not particularly um fanatical in its support of Israel um 
and so it's sort of you know bemused they 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 see hawk you know getting all animated and you know he's you know the yasser arafat has has you know sought him out and he's he seems to be very flattered by this and um you know they're sort of saying you know um they're sort of chuckling to themselves you know about about hawk and they say you know well have you tried talking to your government and he's you know um absolutely not um and then he then he offers information about um a cabal that he's he's form, forming within Parliament um, that is designed is directed at the Prime Minister, and he's doing this with the the Labour leader in Victoria, Clyde Holding, and it's called the Friends of Israel. Um, and so Holding is, you know, is another figure in all of this, um, and and not only that, his deputy as well. Um, uh, Frank uh, Frank uh, Wilkes, um, and so he's they're they're also offering information at the at around the same time, talking about how you know they're they're they've just staged a, a coup um, and and uh, a renovation um, of the Victorian Young Labour Association to to get rid of pro Arab um, you know what they see as anti Israel. Um, as you know members within that organization um and so the other the other time where hawk is um undermining the whitlam government specifically is again in 1974 um and it's in late 1974 and um he is talking with the u.s embassy and is reporting to them that that uh you know he's got feelers out about this political realignment and he does it in a in a in a way that suggests that he's trying to gauge what they think of it you know he's trying to sort of flatly you know present this idea that he will abandon the labor party um you know he is presently um the president of the alp and so he he wants to he's he's there's this idea that he will abandon the labor party and that he will pursue a national government, you know, uh, like they do in in the UK, um, or have done in the UK, and that this this government will be a centrist government that it will solve the crisis, you know, um, and you know bring about um, peace and stability, and, you know, and so he reports this to them, but doesn't indicate whether or not he's actually on board with it or not. I mean, the mere fact that he's mentioning it is, of course, an indication that he is receptive to the idea and then in a conversation with Rupert Murdoch um, a conversation in which Murdoch specifically says he is going to sink the Whitlam government that he no longer supports it um, because you know it is forgotten often that uh, the Whitlam government had the support of Rupert Murdoch um, for you know um, a lot of its time um, and he's now specifically saying right you know I'm going to get rid of these guys and um, you know, he talks about how Hawke has has is talking about national government. He's talking about you know some some non Labour government at which he'll be head of, and he suggests that it's a good idea for Hawke personally that that if Hawke wants to become prime minister, that this is really his his shot at it um, because Labour's going down. Um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um. 
I guess, kind of how this has been received because, like, so much of these cables are, are at this really incredible moment in history. Like, it, a lot of what you've just been talking about is centering on 1974 and what's happening in the Middle East and the the kind of the, the global context for this is that we had the, um, the oil crisis in, in 1973 and the... the position of Israel as a really important bastion of the US empire um, is starting to firm over this period. And the the way that these cables reveal, um, even, even just like a tiny bit, what's happening in the Australian kind of context is really fascinating. What you were talking a little bit before about, um, I guess, like what, what these can prove, but also what they can't. And I guess the, the role of speculation and um, a little bit about how this has been received, which I think is a really interesting discussion to have as well. Yeah, like this comes back to the question of how we write history, where like you were kind of saying, seems seems like people there's been kind of a really big response to this, right? I mean, it's I don't know if like it seems like it was maybe a bigger response than you were expecting, but also a lot of people kind of pick it up and say like it kind of suggests but does not prove a lot of stuff that goes beyond the historical record into the realm of like yeah speculation um into the realm of like well was whitlam dismissed by the cia like how does this like you know things that people like um it kind of hints at a story that it fits with a, a narrative that people are telling themselves around the world uh like about the world but doesn't go beyond hinting at it and that seems to like sink into people's brains in a particular way when they like read an essay like this so like i guess the question is what like to maybe wrap up like what do you reckon the role is of speculation in like understanding the historical record and then like how far can we go from the evidence but also like like what what can we like kind of do with this information like now that we know the stuff that we know for a fact what can we where can we go from here? Well, I, I think the thing that surprises me most about the the immediate reaction to it is that people seem to be reading it, um, which which is good because it's it's not it is a nuanced um, piece, or at least that that's you know certainly the intention. Um, you know, I, I approach this in a in a legalistic way, um, in that. You know, although my interest is obviously, um, you know, motivated, you know, it's 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 subjective. I'm I'm I want to to write something that's relevant to now, with respect to a number of different debates, but in in particular, foreign interference um, in in Australia. The important thing with it is is to say that you know I started with the cables and I let the cables guide me. And so that's why I came to Hawk, and it's why it has this particular structure. It was naturally, you know, it was pretty pretty shambolic because it was just there's just cables mentioning all sorts of different things all over the place. But with this structure, it shows, you know, clearly what what you know which areas were of importance, you know, that dominated the relationship, and sets it out in a way that is based in fact, and so that. If somebody wants to challenge it, then they have to do more than what um, a former, you know, prominent politician, Paul Everingham, you know, said in the Australian, which was was that the argument is, quote unquote, balls. You know, you, you've sort of got to do a bit more than this. 
um, in order to to argue against it. Um, and it's an approach that I, I, I learned um, from an, a number of different people, but in particular, um, Elizabeth Humphreys, um, who has, has spoken about, um, you know, this, this kind of, you know, response to her work. Um, uh, but also, you know, just watching how, how, you know, Wayne Swan, for example, responded to her work. And, and I, I think there was two tweets. One was nonsense and the other one was rubbish. And, and so here's, here's a scholar who has, has spent a great deal of time amassing, you know, an argument based in evidence and, you know, sets it out in a book, you know, <laughs> and you get these one-word responses, um, which I think says, says a lot. Um, you know, and I dare say as time passes, you know, you'll get scholars who, who perhaps disagree or, or you know, perhaps, um, you know, don't agree fully with it. Um, I think your piece is interesting um, because it it taps it gets to the heart of this kind of um, hawk mythology. Like we were talking a little bit um, before we started recording about the yeah this particularly in the Labor Party. Well, I would say only in the Labor Party. This mythology around Hawk is like such a great guy and this like you know um, larrikin and and uh, unionist and all the rest of it and how when he died during the last federal election, there was this like huge outpouring of grief um, and how there's a bit of a hagiography of Hawke that goes on in the labor movement. Um, but nowhere else, I would say, like, I, you know, the, the fact that he died and there was this all this song and dance about like, because it was like right before that election, everyone thought Shorten was going to win. And then when Hawke died, um, everyone thought that that was like the final sort of determinant that would definitely push the Labour Party into a victory and turned out not to be true at all. Um, and so it would seem that the general public probably doesn't actually care that much about this sort of myth of Hawke, but the Labour Party certainly does. So I would be interested to see like whether any Labour politicians tweet about your piece or what their take on it is, because I would imagine that it definitely touches a nerve. Well, I think it's it's a good observation um, about, you know, Hawke's death and and short and not winning and it was pointed out also that that you know his popularity was short-lived you know he was he was hawk was a popular politician and within the margin of error you know beat rudd by one percent i think it was you know and you know everyone likes to nitpick over these sorts of things you know um but that was it was pretty short-lived um and so by by the 1980s no 1987 rather um you know he's in in Ireland, and he's he's uh, you know being asked by an Australian journalist, you know whether or not it's a, a nice change to not be booed at the football. The, the part of the the mythology is that Hawke was popular, um, and and sure, you know I guess I guess he is more popular than other um, past politicians, and certainly more likable than than you know people like um, you know Paul Keating, you know who who sort of seem to 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 relish. You know the the cut and thrust of politics. You know, whereas Hawke was one of us. He was, a, you know, true blue, larrikin. You know, um, I'm actually writing a, a an, an article about this now, um, which has just been submitted for for peer review. So, you know, I, I dare not I dare not um, talk too much about it. But um, uh, you know, suffice to say, the basis of Hawke's larrikin image is his 
um, world record in beer sculling. Yeah, it, it is a world record that is bogus. We'll have to get you on to talk about that when that article comes out because <laughs> I want to hear um, all about the truth. I want to do a, a world record truther episode. I think, yeah, I think that's probably um, a good spot to maybe end it on. Um, is there any, like, where can people actually go to read this article? Because it's an academic piece. Is there anywhere that's accessible for people who aren't, um, who don't have access to university libraries or anything like that? Or should they message you to find it? What's the deal? Oh, it's perfectly accessible. Um, they should pay 42 US dollars uh, to Wiley uh, for, All right. for, 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 for <laughs> <Of course. laughs> Um But if they, if they don't want to do that, then, you know, they might rummage around on... on uh, ResearchGate and find a, a PDF of a of a um of a proof. Interesting. Okay, good to know. <laughs> um, yeah. Did anyone else wanted to uh, get in some final comments before we wrap it up with Cam? Uh, I wanted to say thank you. Mostly, um, it's really fantastic to have um, have these discussions ground that are that are really like grounded in what was possible. And I think there's a really interesting moment happening politically at the moment where. Um, and you see this with with uh, like podcasts like True and On, but also um, just more broadly with WikiLeaks, where this kind of merging between conspiracy and what's provable is is starting to become a little bit messy. And I think it's partly a matter of people really yearning to find out what the truth behind history is and what what some of the agents that have shaped it is. And it's really fantastic to see exactly what we can what we can say for sure has happened here in Australia and the way that our, our our lives have been shaped by this this history. No, well thank you for having me on. Um I should say I think one of the questions uh I think it might have been Matt um said uh, asked wh- whether or not uh, what do you do now? You know, where do you go from from here? And I think it's it's an important um point if I can concentrate while my labrador is cleaning herself yet again. Um Please stop. Um, the uh, the you, you know look at look at the work of um, Clinton Fernandez um, at UNSW um, and his in particular a book that he wrote um, called What Uncle Sam Wants, um, which which was published in 2019. Um, and 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 in this book he uses the WikiLeaks cables um, and from the 2003 to 2010 and demonstrates that. There's a reason why a lot of people are not going to go anywhere near this and why it's being ignored, um, not just by Labour politicians, but why um, my Hawke article is is being ignored by, you know, some pretty ferocious um, pro-Labour types um, on social media. People that, that, you know, you would think would be all over this and, and uh, all over me. They're, they're ignoring this because it's very relevant to now. Um, Fernandez demonstrates that there are a great many people um, in uh, politics in that period, um, but those people are still here and that they, they are operating in a way that is should be discussed. Um, and as he demonstrates, even with uh, a government like the, the Rudd government in the first um, time around, while it was pursuing seemingly pursuing climate change action, um, it was it was also telling the the US um, officials telling the US ambassador that its approach would be rational and cautious and um, and and the quote is no intention to give the US public grief over the issue 
So this is this is very relevant to now, and it is it is something that is you know you do have to be very careful to not to not cross that threshold and go into the world of of fantasy uh, you know conspiracy and and you know frankly deep state stuff, but stick strictly to the evidence, um, and and you know hopefully um, you know have a have a debate about whether or not we. We're, we, we're, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to live in a democratic society, so let's have a debate. Do we approve? Yeah, well, uh, thanks again, Cam, for coming on and um, talking us through this material. It's really been uh, fascinating. Thanks, Cam. No, thanks for having me. It's great.